So the worst Bitcoin FUD that I have heard, I think is probably the China controls Bitcoin FUD because I guess I just don't understand how anyone could believe that. That was a favorite go-to for a while too. Maybe it was because there was a lot of hash rate in China. But if anyone had read the Block Size War book or read a few articles about it, they would have discovered that actually miners don't control Bitcoin. And that one time that miners did try to control Bitcoin when Jihan Wu's company that produced the Ant Miner S9, yeah, yeah, they actually went full Bitcoin cash. And you had to buy, I think in 2017, you could only buy an S9 if you sent them Bcash. <laughs> and they basically made infinite losses from yeah, that right. transaction. And Jihan got kicked out of the company. It was going to be this huge IPO in Hong Kong and, and they had to cancel it because they were just such a dumpster fire after going long Bcash. You know, when, when, uh, when China announced they were shutting down all the Bitcoin mining and that all the Bitcoin miners had to halt operations one of my first thought was well like what are all the uh, bitcoin fudders going to comment on now because this is always like talking point number two is china controls all the hash rate but then what was remarkable is not only did that pan out to be false but a lot of the mining power moved to the united states and at right at the time when the industry realized we have got to take a greener approach to this and so they've really innovated on natural gas captures and all these different solutions to help make the industry greener. And so that hash rate, the majority of it is now in the United States. And the majority of that is also renewable green hash rate. Not all of it, but a lot of it now. It's been a hugely beneficial thing for Bitcoin. And if you say, OK, well, not all of the hash rate is green. So therefore it's bad. Hold on a second. Hold up a mirror. What industry is 100% green? The hurdle rate, our benchmark should be how green are other industries? And by that metric, Bitcoin mining is much greener than other industries because of yeah. the way that the usage yeah. of power is incentivized. You mentioned China FUD. For me, it's definitely energy FUD now. It just seems to be, it's a very complicated topic and I'm no energy market expert, you know, I'm not Mr. Expert here, but I've realized as I've begun researching this whole Bitcoin energy usage thing that I really didn't have the vaguest idea of how the energy market is structured. And it's so much more complicated. And it really comes down to how clean and green are the sources of energy that are supplying energy to the grid and, and how realistic are some green sources like, say, wind. Or solar. That is a. It sounds like oh sure that's yeah okay. No, it's way more complicated than you'd think. Way more. So before I give up on China, the real craziness of China controls Bitcoin is that China is anti-Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a decentralized network that you can't control that lets people do whatever the heck they want with money. That's just not their thing, man. It's the opposite of their thing. They literally invented the first central bank digital currency, which is horrible and they can barely pay people to use. And it also gives you a social credit score. So if you buy alcohol, your score goes down. But if you buy diapers, your score goes up. I mean, it's, it's going to distort the incentives in Chinese society for years if they roll that thing out further. That would, and something like that would never happen here. Never. <laughs> Except it's being proposed. Oh, no. 
Dun, dun, dun. Wait, yeah. we didn't introduce the show. Oh, sorry about that. We just got right into it this week because there's a lot to talk about. He's Dad. I'm Chris. Yes, that was the introduction. And this is Friday, the 1st of April. Oh, we should have had an April Fool's joke. We're going we're gonna to pivot to the Ethereum pod show. The uh, Ethereum Chris and Bitcoin Dad pod. And we're, we're actually going to be distributing uh, links to each download via an ERC20 token. So you get that token and then you'll spend that token to download the episode. So our episodes will be NFTs and our episodes will be hosted on, is it Filecoin or sure. interplanetary I mean, file I system? You know, I think with, with our new pivot to Ethereum, I don't think we need to worry about decentralization as much. So we could probably just throw that up on AWS. Be nice and quick. We don't have to worry about it now. I thought interplanetary file system was AWS on the back end. <laughs> oh, man. There's some IPFS folks out there that would hate it. Please boost your hate into the show there you and go. we will read it out. Monetize the hate. I mean, might as well, right? Because it seems like there's a lot of people that monetize FUD these days. And they're really trying to use FUD as an opportunity to knock Bitcoin down a peg. And guess what? They have just the solution to solve all of Bitcoin's problems, too. Isn't that perfect and convenient? That was an April Fool's joke, just to clarify. So whoever is pinging me right now asking for the NFT link, it's not, it's not coming. <laughs> but what Chris is referring to is this new website, which is super slick. Love it. Just kidding. It's called cleanupbitcoin.com. And it's full of, you can tell that these articles suck because the links are really goofy. Criticism two is Bitcoin alone could help warm the planet more than two degrees. So it links to this article on nature climate change, which you can't read because it's behind a paywall. And this is the famous Mora et al. article. And it claims that Bitcoin emissions alone could push global warming above two degrees Celsius. And this is clearly crazy because Bitcoin uses less than a fraction of 1% of global energy production. By any metric, Bitcoin is at least 60% renewable. So this is a negligible amount of of power, a negligible amount of emissions. So how exactly do they get to this number? It's because they basically use a really silly metric where they guess the amount of energy per transaction, and then they sort of scale up the number of transactions as the Bitcoin price increases or something? This is surprising to me because it seems like if they are in the position of making these claims and spending $5 million in advertising, it's sort of almost alarming that they don't understand that the Bitcoin network uses the same amount of energy for one transaction or for a million transactions. That doesn't change how much energy a node uses. It's sort of startling that so somebody in this position wouldn't understand that? So let me give you the backstory here. This Clean Up Bitcoin campaign is being funded by a $5 million contribution from Ripple co-founder Chris Larson. Chris Larson is being sued by the SEC for offering XRP as an unregistered securities offering. XRP is probably one of the scammiest companies in the crypto space, one of the most successfully scammy. There's documented internal emails about how they manipulate the price and pump and dump the price to basically fund their operations. It's a complete joke of a company. That's been my observation as well. And what Chris is doing is he's spending a little money to cash shade on Bitcoin while the SEC is suing him. I think probably to somehow claim that Ripple is good or XRP is good because it's 
doesn't use a lot of energy. And the reason it doesn't use a lot of energy is that it's basically a database run by the Ripple company. It's complete garbage as a protocol. I've looked at it. It's, uh, it's so bad, it's a joke. Their consensus mechanism is timestamps. If you send a transaction with a older timestamp, it will be processed with a transaction with a newer timestamp. Guess what? I can create any timestamp I want. It, it, it's so silly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the criticisms in here don't land very well. Like they say, one of the problems here is even if, even if we could come up with a solution for Bitcoin itself, Bitcoin stakeholders are incentivized not to change. I'm reading this from their website. They say, changing Bitcoin would render a whole lot of expensive infrastructure worthless, meaning Bitcoin stakeholders will need to walk away from sunk costs to find or find other creative solutions. See, this is sort of silly because to make Bitcoin mining green, you just change where the source of the energy comes from. You don't have to change the infrastructure. You don't have to change the miners. You just change how the energy is produced. Uh, and I think you could argue, sure, okay, but should we be using the energy for Bitcoin? I think that's a valid argument. And I think the answer is if you believe Bitcoin has value, it's yes. And if you don't believe Bitcoin has any value, then it's no. And it just kind of comes down to something as simple as that. Right. And Bitcoin will always be worth more than XRP until XRP manages to somehow weaponize the U.S. government and regulatory apparatus against Bitcoin. So Chris is just a really mediocre human being. He's a financial scammer. Not this Chris. Oh, not Chris. Sorry. No, Chris but, but Ripple Chris. Yeah, yeah Ripple Chris. <laughs> yeah, Chris Jupiter Broadcasting is the opposite and also very handsome, has great hair. All right. Even though he needs a haircut, he's still getting compliments. And now he's talking about himself in the third person, too. You know you've made it when you're talking about yourself in the third person. <laughs> Doesn't Elon Musk do that? I mean, I would if I were is Elon he, Musk. Does he call himself the Elon? <laughs> oh, guy, I hope or so. Or is it Elon? I, I've heard people say Elon as well. But, I want to say Elon but now. I, I think he says Elon. So Now I really want to say Elon. Well, there you go. That's actually probably a pretty good way to get him. Um, so I found a couple of PDFs that were put together by one of the mining and sort of Bitcoin interest groups out there. So do, you know, keep in mind the source, but they've tried to do a blow by blow reply to this new energy FUD with a couple of PDF fact sheets and one that goes into even more detail. And I, I find it this, the ironic thing about the energy FUD is I actually I'm one of these idiots that actually thinks that Bitcoin is the pathway to renewable energy for the U.S. power grid, because I believe the only way to get the U.S. power grid clean is to make money doing it because all of the people who are established interests that are getting rich now aren't going to change their way of doing business unless they can make money. And my underlying premise for all of this is if you want to reduce CO2 emissions, then we've got to get people off electric vehicles, off of electric heat. We've got to get people on electric heat in their homes. They've got to stop driving gas vehicles. We've got to stop shipping gas everywhere. And the only way to do that is really to improve the grid and where the grid gets its power from. Because if we all transition to electric cars and electric power, we're just going to burn more fossil fuels. It's going to be a worse position we're in, and we'll put a larger demand on the grid. So something like Bitcoin mining that can come along and help power companies incentivize renewable sources by providing dynamic, always available load, it really could change the game. 
And when you start to appreciate how it can make money for these people to move to renewables, you actually start to see a pathway forward. And it makes me the most optimistic about possible change than I have ever been. And it actually makes me think there is a pathway towards solving this problem if we take advantage of Bitcoin mining as the on-demand load generator and load absorber that it can be. So to summarize what Chris is saying, essentially, there's not been a lot of investment in power grids outside of China, like globally in the past 30 years. And so the U.S. power grid is a mess. There's not a lot of new generation capacity. And even the renewables being added to the grid, while it's cool that we're doing, we're adding renewables and they're not producing as much fossil fuel, though I think we have to take a holistic look. So if you burned a lot of coal to create solar panels, did you really reduce emissions? I don't know. You know, I think that that needs to be examined. But essentially, what Chris is saying is that we move to a clean electric future when we have plentiful and cheap electric power. And we don't have that now, and we won't have that without massive investment. But here's the kicker. Electricity usage is not actually increasing in the U.S. To get more plentiful, cheap power, we need demand for plentiful, cheap power, and we don't have that. So this seems counterintuitive, but we actually need businesses that need lots of cheap power to incentivize other businesses to create lots of cheap power. And Bitcoin mining is the demand. And, you know, we need someone to satisfy that demand, maybe with nuclear. I'm a huge fan of nuclear. I think it's, it could be great for anyone who thinks I'm crazy. Consider this. We've never actually had a modern nuclear power accident. Oh, but wait, Fukushima, that was recently. No, that was a plant that was built in the 1970s. There's never been a modern nuclear power plant that had any sort of safety problem because the technology has gotten so much better. Right. Think so, about how much technology has changed since the 70s. Honestly, Fukushima was a win. Whoa, a win? You're nuts. Okay, uh, listen, listen here. Basically, when they built Fukushima, they didn't even know there was a fault line under it. Okay, they built it with a seawall to protect from tsunamis before global warming raised the oceans and the fault line gave them a mega tsunami. So basically they were hit with like a six sigma way beyond the specifications attack. And, you know, one of six reactors melted down and how many people died? None. No one died. Okay. There's some radioactive contamination. That's a bummer. It's something that can be dealt with. And sorry for everyone who had to move. That really sucks. At the same time, we can socialize these risks in a way that gives us plentiful, cheap power. And while we're building out the, the economy that wants all that plentiful, cheap power, Bitcoin miners will happily buy it and make these projects money and make it all make sense. Why fight the future? We can embrace it. Everyone can make money. We can have cleaner power. It just seems like there's a lot to look forward to, in my opinion. Just my last thoughts on this. Well put. I think there's an underlying assumption that this proof of work argument is based on when it's. You know, I, I'll take technical arguments. I'll take social arguments about proof of work versus proof of stake. But when you're looking at the environment as the leading reason to abandon proof of work, I think the underlying argument that actually is propping all of this up is this argument that any new industrial expansion that's going to use a lot of power must be stopped to save the earth. 
And if we don't stop it, we're going to we're going to propel ourselves into a horrible climate change situation. So therefore, we must stop. But what you're what you are fundamentally arguing there is to stop all forward technical innovation. But what you also are doing is you are saying all of this from a position of enormous privilege because you likely live in a Western country that has grown to the point it has thanks to cheap energy. Right. You can't just say, sitting in North America or Western Europe, well, I'm in my electrified home with indoor plumbing and I have international supply chains bringing me fancy cheese at my local supermarket and life is good. But I'm sorry, developing world. You, you industrializing and getting all these comforts, the planet can't handle that. That's not, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take one on the chin. Toodaloo. This is completely hypocritical and unacceptable. And if you try to create that world, there will be conflict. It will not be good. This is, in fact, very similar to the 1970s population control movement, which the history is absolutely insane. Basically, there was this book, The Population Bomb, And the idea was, the developing world is going to be overrun with lots of new children, and they're all going to starve, and it'll be a disaster, and the only solution is population control. So basically, Western countries said, you know what, we're concerned about there being enough resources for us, so we'd really like all of you people not in the West possibly with a different skin color. Would you guys mind like just like not having kids? Yeah. Why don't here? Here's here's a program about sex education. Here's some free condoms. Yeah. It, <laughs> Slow no, down. it was even worse. The there were forced sterilization policies in China which have completely messed up their demographics and society. China now has one of the worst demographics in the world. There were forced sterilization programs in India uh, through Indira Gandhi's government that were very nasty. I mean, this is a massive violation of human rights. And guess what? If you're doing population control, you're going to attack women's rights first. So it's not compatible with sort of a human rights first mentality. Right. And it's the same thing. It's basically armchair, hand-wringing, Western... Total lack of understanding of their own privilege in the process. Total lack of self-awareness, folks... Make, trying to make decisions for the rest of humanity. Right. They are, they are literally pulling the ladder up. And I think something to consider is that Bitcoin mining could be a worldwide jobs program. And so we need to solve this problem because it's, if the U.S. were to pass regulations that outlawed proof of work and only allowed proof of stake, where do you think all that mining capability is going to go? You think it's just going to go away? Of course not. It'll be fired up in places that have Almost no environmental regulations that have no rules. And it'll be great. Like <laughs> It'll I, be great. You know, seriously, I would, I've always been looking for a chance to move to Africa. And if this is it, that would be fantastic. Right, okay. I would sure. jump on that I mean, that's just it. So I, I find the whole thing based on sort of a false premise to begin with. And then when you look at what they cite, they cite a bunch of phony baloney websites, some of which are behind paywalls, but some of which are just like, Verge articles and stuff. It's like weak references to begin with. And then the very person behind it clearly has a financial motivation. (laughs) It clearly has a secondary motivation. It's sort of ridiculous on its face. And yet, because they're buying ads in the New York Times, 
And because they are playing into certain narratives and because of the brand behind it, uh, it's going to get I think this is one of those things that's going to get circulated for for a while. So let's move on from energy. And we have two bits of sort of negative news. We need to put positive news in. Kraken Exchange joined the Lightning Network officially, and now you can move funds on and off the Kraken Exchange using Lightning. I mention that only because I think that should just take off everywhere, and perhaps this is the beginning of a trend. That is cool. Also, Chris hosted a Jupiter Broadcasting Sats giveaway. That was really fun. It was. Where a bunch of listeners joined his Matrix channel, and he gave gave them some Satoshis to put into a Podcasting 2.0 app. It's wild. I mean, I, I joined in too. I, I think I double dipped someone. I gave someone posted an invoice and I was like, oh, yeah, here's some sets. <laughs> yeah. And uh, next week, which probably won't be here, but next week is the Bitcoin Miami conference. And there are saying, although who knows, but the event organizer is saying there's a very large announcement planned. So it could be another nation goes reserve currency. El Salvador was announced at the last one. Could be Strike announces Apple Pay integration. Could be both. On a more negative side, I think that the El Salvadorian president, Bukele, he actually canceled the uh, or delayed the El Salvador Bitcoin bond offering. What was the story there? Did you follow that? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting because they kind of came out and said, oh, it's oversold. Actually, we have in, we have incredible demand. It's unbelievable. I've already got all these commitments that their treasury guy did. And then like a couple of weeks later, it was like, oh, and, and then it first said, and it's going to be any day now. And then like any day came and went and their treasury guy came out and said, well, you see, we're looking at the market and we think with the war in Ukraine right now, this is not the best time for a bond that's kind of a whole FU to the entire international system to come out. So I think we're going to punt till September. It's like, remember what I said is I've initially expected the, I actually would think the El Salvador situation would go poorly because humans don't usually get something like this right on the first try. We usually have to fail a couple of times and then we have to see where we went wrong learn from the mistake, and then do a correct implementation. And I just say that from watching the technology industry over all these years. That's a good point. I agree with you. I do not expect the El Salvador experiment to go well, not because I'm a negative Nelly. Sorry to all you Nellies out there. But just because from a technical perspective, they seem to have implemented it without a lot of transparency by a government that doesn't really have a very good human rights record or legal record. It looks like Bukele is going to run for office a second time, which is contrary to their constitution. That's not super positive. And on other super unpositive news, it looks like the EU is gearing up to try to ban or restrict self-custody of crypto assets. One of the number one things we advocate for on this show. I have to say this is completely to be expected. There are several reasons why the EU, I think, will always be harsher on digital assets than the U.S. The first reason is that the U.S. dollar is the cleanest dirty shirt in terms of global currencies. So it's not great, but it works for some people and it has a huge network effect. The euro is barely used outside of Europe. There's no demand for euro stable coins. Basically, the entire crypto ecosystem is dollarized through dollar stable coins like Tether and USDT and USDC. What does that tell you? It tells you that there's not really that much demand for euros outside of Europe as a local currency. And so Europe is actually financially quite fragile in that sense, because this means that 
if their monetary policy is too insane, like the U.S.'s monetary policy, then they're going to get inflation and second order effects faster. So it makes sense for them to basically be very hostile to exit, exit doors from the euro system. Uh, because if you think about how this might play out, imagine the ECB does something crazy, some big new bond offering, lots of free money. And then as a pensioner, you're kind of sweating. You're thinking, gosh, oh, the price of bread's going up. And, you know, you want to buy some gold, buy some Bitcoin, buy a horse, whatever, some real assets. And the EU doesn't want you to do that because you're contributing to inflation and you're basically reducing demand for their currency. And so they're trying to shut the door, trap you in that system so that they can basically perform monetary experiments on their citizens. Yeah, well, they need you to stay in the system because everybody that leaves the system makes it a little less value. And they don't do it just for one thing. It's across all kinds of things, investments, where you spend your money, how you can store your money, how you do your savings. You know, it, it strikes me, especially in the EU, but I imagine this is likely going to be everywhere. We really are truly watching that original adoption paradigm play out. You know, first they laugh at you and we are absolutely in the then they fight you phase right now. Except they're fighting and joining simultaneously. So it's it's just a big mess. Well, you know, I suppose if if, if you thought about it, it does make sense, right? So many times there are multiple interests in these different organizations and these different government departments and all this stuff. There's just competing interests consistently. And one of the things you're seeing happen in the U.S. right now in this regard is you're seeing a, a battle between Secret Service, the FBI, the Treasury Department, and other divisions that believe they should be the top cop of crypto. And that and you can go look on like each one of these the organizations I just named. You can go look on their website and they have like a pitch as to how they're going to save Americans from the dangers of crypto and keep everybody's money safe. And they all want to be the top cop. That's what we're seeing here is that these agencies have identified there's money in those waters there and they want to be the big shark. My money is on the Secret Service. There's always some news about them doing something scandalous in a hotel room. So I just think they have crypto, <laughs> crypto ethos. Yeah, although, you know, the FBI, you got to figure the FBI is sitting on a lot of Bitcoin here and there. But they're know? so straight-laced and it's true. unfunny, no sense of humor. If they had to do an enforcement action and they confiscated a million Dogecoins, would they even meme the announcement? I don't know. I don't think they would. No. And the fun, the fun FBI agents always end up in jail, like the one that was ended up being like a buyer and seller on uh, Silk Road that was, that was like laundering the Bitcoin money and all that kind of stuff. That, I don't know if you remember, but when Ross Albrecht got arrested... Some FBI agents around the investigation went down with him, too. <laughs> Which was hidden from the jurors on Ross's trial. Interesting. Yeah, how, yeah, funny how that worked, huh? Yeah, the criminality of the people who accused him of a crime was not brought up in his defense. Seems like that would have mattered. Yeah, I, I hate to see the EU do this because I think in all the ways you could regulate crypto, I think banning self-custody is the most inhumane. I mean, we've talked about Ukrainian refugees who are crossing the border with their seed key in their memory palace. We have talked about how inflation is going to be just awful over the next decade in the Western world. We've talked about how Russian citizens can use crypto to help insulate themselves from the drop in the value of the ruby. It's clear that the peasant class, the middle class, the pensioners, whatever you want to call them, they are the ones that benefit the most from something like self-custody because large organizations they have to disclose all this stuff on their balance sheet. They have finance departments. 
they don't generally participate in self-custody, like the case of, of macro strategy and micro strategy. They don't self-custody. They pay someone else to custody. I think they pay Coinbase custody, actually. Yeah. Yeah, their cold wallet system. So this is 100% designed to go after mom and dads who are trying to put a little bit of crypto away. So that way, after the next 10 years of economic devastation occur, maybe they can get their kids into school or maybe they can afford to buy a home. You know, it's like it's clearly that's who's using self-custody wallets and not large corporations or criminal rings. And it's it's so inhumane to see them do this. It's it's cynical and it's cold. You said two of the bingo words of today, cynical and cold, which, of course, brings to mind my favorite monetary uh, modern monetary economist, Rohan Gray. Rohan, I hope you're a listener. I'd love to have you on. We could really have a fun conversation. He's, uh, he's great on podcasts because he, he has an Australian accent and he gets really riled up. You can almost tell that he's like spitting into the mic a little. Oh, man. Well, I mean, you laugh, but I think he's got a great idea here. It's like a form of electronic cash that you can self-custody and share directly with each other over like a peer-to-peer exchange medium. Some, this is a good idea here. Yeah, e-cash. Or maybe we could just keep on using physical cash. <laughs> so yeah. basically, there's a, a proposed bill with some Democratic... Yeah, it's uh, Representative Lynch. Looks like Lynch is a Democrat. There's a couple in here. I think that the people behind who proposed the bill are less important than Rohan Gray, because I'm pretty sure he wrote it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the idea is a CBDC that's a centralized system controlled by the Federal Reserve and Treasury that might be a privacy nightmare. So let's create a government-sanctioned private digital cash system, and that'll be the alternative. So what's the problem here? Sounds good, right? The problem is, one, there is no technology to create this. The technology that creates this is called Bitcoin. So what's the problem with Bitcoin? Why do you want to create your own thing? And the answer is because a system like this would necessarily have to have some kind of KYC, some kind of transaction limits. There would be controls on it. You'd have to have a database, too. You'd have to. There's no way to do what they're describing, a form of sort of digital bearer asset, is impossible to do at a peer-to-peer level without creating a global state like the Bitcoin blockchain. And some way to do a global consensus system. And then also, because of the way this works, is the idea is that it's built into everyone's phone. A, you now have to have a phone to have access to cash, or you have to be, they have to create some new device that doesn't exist. And phones are highly tied to your identity. And the, the entire stack is owned by Apple or Google. So there's two ginormous tech companies that have to be middlemen. <laughs> and, you know, let's be honest, an Android phone that's three or four years old is one of the least secure devices on the internet at that point, because most of them are no longer even getting patched. And now you're going to walk around with that thing as your wallet? <laughs> that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And the idea that they'd have to create some sort of peer-to-peer protocol to enable this thing, like they're basically reinventing Bitcoin only without any of the consumer protections of Bitcoin. Hold on. Hold on, Chris. Are you suggesting that this bill was written by someone who wasn't particularly technical, perhaps by a lawyer? What? Never. And you'd be right because Rohan Gray is a lawyer. So a little bit of background. He's an Australian. He claims to care about privacy and individual rights. 
He actually claims to support this Debian sort of personal computer project where you can run a little Debian uh, distro with maybe with Matrix on a Raspberry Pi. But frankly, it's not a very well-known or popular project. I think it might have been abandoned. And Rohan basically comes on the wrong side of a lot of Bitcoin issues. Basically, he's very anti-Bitcoin. He seems to think that Bitcoin is a tool for financial elites to get one over on the common man or on the government or something. Yet at the same time, he by rejecting Bitcoin, he's rejecting the only sort of peer-to-peer non-government money that has wide adoption and works. So it's very confusing. So what's really going on here? I think what's going on is the fact that Rohan is a MMTer, a modern monetary theorist. He's friends with Stephanie Kelton. I know this because they were both on the John Oliver podcast and referred to each other as friends. And I'm also a modern monetary theorist, by the way, because the central point, in my opinion, of modern monetary theory is the idea that, hey, in the past, when people have proposed that the U.S. government spend more money on, say, education or giving people health care, hands went in the air and everyone said, oh, my gosh, we can't do that. How could we ever pay for it? That would be impossible. The, the bond payments, we'd bankrupt the country, can't do it. Yet, when someone said, hey, you know, we have 10 aircraft carriers, it'd be really nice to have 13. That was no problem. No, oh, here, here's a blank check, go for it. Basically, MMT is saying, you know, it actually turns out that we can kind of spend money on what we want. And all of these arguments about not being able to afford nice stuff for regular people are a bit fallacious. The problem with MMT, there's so many problems with it. I'm an MMTer because I think that their point, which is that federal budgets can sort of be what you want. They're not really constrained by gravity, especially if you're the world reserve currency. It's sort of true in some respects. So I, I, I like that, adding that to the conversation. The problem is that for some reason, MMT adherents seem to think that MMT will only be used for social programs. But if we can spend infinite money on healthcare, why can't we also spend infinite money on weapons and on the military? You can do both. So it's not necessarily a harmless policy or a pro-social policy, because even if you gave every American healthcare, if you create an autonomous drone army and unleash it on the rest of the world, that's pretty negative. You might want to think about that. The other thing that MMTers believe, which is just laughably false, is that Money has value because, guess I'm going to finish this uh, sentence, Chris. Because we say it does? Close. No, I mean, that's always what I hear. Money only has value because we all say it has value. Well, I think that's actually close to the truth. No, they think that money has value because you can pay taxes with it. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, what gives the dollar value is the U.S. government will accept it for your taxes and we all have to pay taxes. Uh, it's a circular argument. If you look at early American banking, the U.S. government created multiple currencies, most notably the greenback during the Civil War, to finance the war effort. And the constraint wasn't, can I pay taxes with it? The demand for currency was on the government side, the government saying, what can we use to buy goods and services so we can fight wars? So in the modern era, with this brief period of fiat money printing, apparently the MMTers have failed to look to the 19th century and observed alternative monetary systems. It sounds like, though, you do think that sort of printing 
to pay for government programs does have benefit. But how do you do that without borrowing a bunch of money and creating inflation? I'm not saying that we should have a completely insane government budget. I think that, first of all, you need, you need government. Government is a, as a way to scale human organization across a very large group of people. But what MMTers miss is that as you create inflation by money printing and using that money for fiscal policy, you change the psychological state of the dollar. If you create enough inflation, people will change their beliefs about your currency. And that change is not a gradient. It's not like, oh, I like the US dollar 98% today and 92% tomorrow. It's more like this thing doesn't work anymore. It's a state change. And suddenly you're in like a new monetary paradigm where people are trying to discover the next money, like the next thing that is money-like and they can use to store value and, and buy things. And, hmm, and it feels useful. like that's exactly where we're at right now. Yeah, it's exactly where we're at. I entirely expect the MMT justification for profligate government spending to be used. I think that the human condition is that we sort of invent solutions to problems that we have right now. Satoshi invented a problem for modern money when we needed it. A solution? <laughs> MMT comes along and provides a supposed solution for government budget deficits, i.e. they don't matter, just go for it when governments need it. Well, they had a problem. They needed to take over the world. So basically, Rohan is, uh, is an interesting character to me. He's a fun opponent, right? Because he's not a dummy. He has ideas. He has thoughts. It's not just all FUD. But he misses a lot of key points. And unfortunately, you know, he's a, he's a bright person who may actually care about people, but he's on the wrong side of this issue. And if you disagree, Rohan, come at me at Bitcoin Dad Pod on yeah, Twitter. Let him know. Yeah, so we're, we'll watch the eCash Act, but your bet is probably not really going anywhere. I mean, we already have private stable coins in the form of Tether, USDT, USDC, and they, tech, they work from a technological perspective. There is KYC in many of the exchanges that accept them. So that's a problem from a privacy point of view, but they can be traded peer to peer. So I think that what's mo much more likely to happen in the US is that. One of these stablecoin companies will get in bed with regulators and try to get regulation to make them the top stablecoin dog. And then that will be the sort of U.S. stablecoin of choice. Well, this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my show, Self-Hosted, over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. It's a podcast about running your own stuff on your own infrastructure. We talk about self-sovereignty for your coins. This is self-sovereignty for your data and your infrastructure your media servers, your sync data, any of that kind of stuff. I run it all from a Raspberry Pi, so we talk about that. And my buddy Alex, he has these huge x86 boxes. He's like on the total opposite end. I, I'm on Alex's side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is nice to have some horsepower sometimes, for sure. I'm going for the low power because I'm running it off solar. But you know what? The gear here in the studio is big, big x86 boxes, actually. So, yeah. Anyways, we talk about all that kind of stuff every other week at selfhosted.show, or just search for self-hosted in your favorite podcast app. When we started this show, one idea was to be a source of Bitcoin education. And as I was just talking before the show with Chris, one thing I've noticed from my own journey is that I have dilly-dallied in approaching primary sources. I think podcasts are very approachable, and that's a place where I did a lot of self-education and 
That's why I thought a podcast might be a good medium. But one problem with podcasts is that you hear a lot of people's views and opinions, and we try to present the facts so that you can make up your own mind. At the same time, it's impossible for us to remove our views from the way we deliver information. So there's always going to be bias. Even if we're right, you need to go to the primary sources so you can be confident in your decisions. And so one primary source is actually Gary Gensler's MIT blockchain class, which is free online from MIT. Now, Gensler is qualified to teach an MIT blockchain class? Well, Gensler is the head of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. He's actually trying to get congressional approval to be the regulator of Bitcoin. And his views on Bitcoin are very interesting from a government policy perspective. And his class is not terrible. It's very approachable. It's interesting. It's an MIT class. So you might think, oh, gosh, MIT, I bet it's a bunch of smart people. I don't know. I watched it and I thought Gary hand waves some of the complicated things, but he generally provides an overview and you can literally just watch it. You're not going to be overwhelmed or anything. So I, I think it's quite approachable. I think if you are interested in Bitcoin, blockchain, smart contracts, you want to just understand these terms and feel a little confident. This class is a no brainer. I think it's 12 or 14 lectures. They're about an hour each. Nice. Okay. Just go for it. A link to that in the show notes for sure. Even if you're not totally a Bitcoin expert, I also think it's worth reading at least the first eight pages of the Bitcoin white paper. I know that's a little cliche, but I don't know. I, I, I've actually I've read it a couple of times because there's something powerful about reading it in Satoshi's direct language and just kind of the things that they touch on there. Uh, and I think it's in an easier to understand language than you'd expect for a Bitcoin white paper. It's incredibly approachable. My father read it when I gave it to him, and his response was, huh, that makes sense. We'll link to the white paper as well. That's also a important historical document because literally every other cryptocurrency project just rips off the Bitcoin white paper. So it's like reading the Bible in eight pages. Once you've read <laughs> the Bitcoin white paper, you've read the crypto original text, and you'll see echoes of it in every other proposal, every other project. Satoshi is, in a sense, the, I don't know, the renaissance man of this whole new way of thinking about communications networks, financial technology. He solved this huge problem in computing. Basically, how do we agree to the state of a network when we can't trust each other? And he combines a lot of great ideas from other people in a way that is truly genius. And still, every other blockchain project is struggling to come up with something better and frankly, hasn't. Yeah. Also, take your time. You know, uh, as you're taking in content, uh, just keep, keep track of uh, how people's opinions that you're listening to play out over the longer term. And uh, what I like to do is I start with a wide funnel of content when I'm learning about something. And I find like content creators in podcasts and YouTube or in books helps me understand the language and sort of the shape of a community and the dynamics that are in there. So when I start to invest even deeper, when I start to spend my time researching more, I understand what they're talking about and, and what the language terms mean and the nuances. And I kind of, as I go along that journey, I whittle down that the content creators that I'm consuming content from 
to the ones that seem like they have been the most reliable and consistent and made the best calls over time. And then I combine that with sort of a parallel track of trying to go to the source material as much as possible. And um, it is a cliche thing to say, but the white papers are often one of the first places I start. And now, um, I, you know, I've kind of got a routine down for absorbing this information and I've sort of built, I guess, a bit of a system out of it. But I also was resistant at first to, to, to dive into the really deep end. Figuring out the, the shape and the language did help with that. Yeah, and that's exactly what I did. I listened to a lot of podcasts. One thing I noticed is that with every wave of Bitcoin adoption, it's a new group of people coming in and they, and they hear a different message. They, they need a different message. And so a lot of podcasts that were around in 2017, today, to be frank, they sound crazy. They're really, they, they've gotten a bit stale, even though they're producing new episodes. But they came in as libertarian Bitcoiners. And, you know, hey, all power to them. I think the libertarian ethos sort of made them prioritize strengths of the Bitcoin protocol that made them receptive to giving it a go. And that was a great decision for those people. At the same time, they have a certain set of views and values that other people might not agree with and might actually find repellent. And so we need different messages for different waves. Completely. And also Bitcoin is different now. In the past, the idea was non-state money and privacy. And it turned out the privacy wasn't too great. And so now we need a, a, a new problem to solve. And I think that problem is probably uh, protecting value from seizure. I think anti-seizure is probably uh, more important to people today. There's also more inflation than there was back then. So that anti-inflationary quality is suddenly more important. And privacy, I think, is still an issue. There aren't, there isn't a hundred percent solution yet, but I think yeah. it's something we'll continue talking it's, about. That's comparative though, right? Privacy is an issue with Bitcoin because it's a public ledger, a blockchain, but it's still better than the situation with, with Vista, Visa or MasterCard or your debit card, right? It's, that is total surveillance capitalism at, 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 at a industrial level. But I agree with it. It does need to be worked on, on more there. I think there's other narratives too, that are going to drive Bitcoin adoption over time. And I think one of them is we as a society just are having a real hard time trusting anything right now, any institution. And what are the chances that Satoshi just happens to be working on something that is totally trustless? You just have to be able to do the math. And if you trust math, you can trust the results. And it means people who are perhaps even enemies can use the same system. And we've seen how open protocols and open networks over time end up providing a lot of utility and value. And that doesn't always translate to a direct message to the consumer, but it translates to different groups like business interest or, or different technology groups. So that could be a message for them as well. So I think there's what I, and what I mean is I think that's going to lead to all kinds of new narratives and reasons over time. What I have learned about Bitcoin, because when we first started using it, it was all about just a better way to spend money on the internet that didn't need PayPal, right? That was like what we were worried about. Uh, and that was the narrative back then. But as time goes on, you realize, and it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's kind of a meme, but Bitcoin fixes things. You fix the money and you fix a lot of things. I don't know if I go as far as say you fix the world, but you fix the money and you fix the incentive structures for so many different things. That's a pretty good message. Well put. The other bit of kind of education 
that I think I wanted to try to do today was Chris mentioned that he has a method for evaluating cryptocurrency projects, altcoins, crazy coins, crazy coins. And it involves reading the white paper and then listening broadly to what that community is saying, what they're concerned about. Stock the developers a little bit. I have the opposite method. You got a quickie. This is a mental shortcut, but I think a powerful one. And what I want to share is how I think about the BTC versus Ethereum blockchain size. And the reason that this is something to care about is that if you can understand this difference and this subtlety, you can actually dismiss 99% of altcoins immediately. Because understanding the problems inherent between Bitcoin and Ethereum actually helps you understand why most projects are just a bald-faced money grab. So let's get into it. Okay, I like it. There is an article from BitMEX Research. I think I've shared it before. Okay. It's the Bitcoin versus Ethereum blockchain, blockchain size article. Right. And it's kind of surprising because from the way that Bitcoiners talk about the decentralization of Bitcoin, you would think that the Ethereum blockchain is very large and can't be stored on a home computer. And therefore, that's why the Ethereum blockchain has centralized to a company called Infira that runs nodes for businesses on AWS. And that's wrong. The Ethereum blockchain is actually still smaller than the Bitcoin blockchain. But it is increasing so much faster that it will be probably double or more the size within a year. What's actually centralizing the Ethereum blockchain? Because if it's, not as, if it's not as big as the Bitcoin blockchain, then why doesn't everyone just run it at home? And there are a couple of things. One, the Ethereum blockchain produces blocks, I think, roughly every 20 seconds. And so this, is, this requires a lot of network traffic and a lot of fast network traffic. And so even if you have the bandwidth to download and upload movies, you might have some delay on your system. and so. You could miss blocks. It could be difficult to stay in sync with the network if you're getting internet disruptions and you need to track 20-second blocks. Mm, Okay. But the real issue is that the Ethereum chain state is much larger than the Bitcoin chain state. So what is the chain state? Well, if the blockchain is the history of transactions, the chain state is the present. The chain state is what you get when you read the whole history of the blockchain, you do all the math, and you figure out what is going on on this blockchain right now. That's the chain state. And so the chain state is changing. It's volatile. This is when transactions come in, with a new, when a new block comes in, the chain state has to change. So the chain state needs to be stored in memory. It needs to be stored in RAM. And the Ethereum chain state is something like... It's 175 as of... November. Okay, 175 gigabytes. Now, I'm someone who runs a big x86 box at home. And I ha- so I have 256 gigabytes at home. But I- <laughs> but so I'm not giving 176 gigabytes to Ethereum just to validate a node. That's crazy. I can run a Bitcoin node with 4 gigabytes of RAM. Okay? That's an order of magnitude difference. So, what's really happened is that the hardware requirements, the complexity of running a, an Ethereum node is so much higher 
that it's just not really in the realm of possibility for people at home. And this is really centralized at blockchain. I mean, 175 gigabytes was November and we're recording this in April. It'd be much larger by now. It's just growing like crazy. So the problem only gets worse. Right. So I guess the question is, why is their chain state so large? And in general, the reasons are that Ethereum has a pretty poor development culture, in my opinion. It's move fast and break things. They essentially have tried to do too much with their base chain. They have Turing complete smart contracts on their base chain. If a programming language is Turing complete, it means that you can solve any problem in that language. Well, guess what? That is a terrible idea for a blockchain because that means you, you can execute recursive code. You can execute an argument that calls itself, that then calls itself, that then calls itself. Yeah, well, that sounds like it could kind of fill up a blockchain with garbage pretty fast. Yeah, exactly. That's what's happened to Ethereum. Ethereum demonstrates that you, you cannot scale an L1 blockchain. You cannot create huge amounts of arbitrary data that all nodes have to store without making that blockchain huge, without making the chain state huge, without centralizing that into data centers. Why does this matter? Well, right now, if you look at the Ethereum share of DeFi, it's actually falling. There are these new Ethereum killers. Solana, Cardano, Avalanche. Phantom. Right. Yep. They all have, There's a few of them out there now. So many names. So how are they... How are they stealing market share from Ethereum? Well, basically, in my opinion, they compete with Ethereum by taking Ethereum's bad ideas up to 11D stupid. Faster blocks, bigger blocks. Hey, you know what? Proof of work, this tested consensus mechanism that works really well. Eh, let's do proof of stake. Probably cheaper, maybe faster. And essentially, they're competing on being poorly designed. They're competing on being centralized. And temporarily, being centralized will give you cheaper fees. It'll, it provides coordination advantages. So being centralized, especially at the beginning of a project, is a great way to sort of like organize and be tactical and sort of gain ground. Long term, I don't think anything's there. I don't think any of these things are going to be valuable in the future. I don't think that I don't think that they'll even exist in the future, some of them, because we're not talking about Bitcoin nodes here, okay? Chris can run a Bitcoin node on a Raspberry Pi. A Raspberry Pi costs $35, but if you want to buy a new computer with 256 gigabytes of RAM, which is, I think, reasonable if you're going to be running the, uh, an Ethereum node on it, you're talking about $12,000 easily. So the other thing, too, that strikes me is Ethereum to me, has always been a developer's platform. It's always been something where a bunch of people who had dreams of being, and with all due respect, but a bunch of people who had dreams of being NASA developers and wanted to go crazy with the, how big of their ideas they could get. And so as a result, a lot of things they have designed are overly complex. And now the Ethereum project has many, many, many years of walking that back to simplify. And on top of that, they have to add additional complexity like sharding before they can actually start simplifying. So they're not even done adding the complexity. And that's not my opinion. That's Vitalik's opinion on his blog. That's his analysis of the situation. He says, quote, sometimes the path is a winding one. 
we need to add some more complexity to first enable sharding, which in turn enables a lot of layer two scalability on top, end quote. He's saying they have to add more complexity. And this whole, uh, this whole blog post is a walkthrough of, well, maybe we made the wrong call here. Maybe we made the wrong call here. And every single time it's a bunch of engineers got really excited about coming up with a problem and over-engineered a solution. And now they're walking that back. <laughs> it's a lot of that. We link to the blog post because if you take the time to read it, it's actually an example of why I kind of like Vitalik Buterin. On the one hand, if you try to debate Vitalik Buterin, he will just spew techno babble at you until you give up and go home. Did we mention he's like the co-creator of Ethereum? Oh, yes. Yeah. Co-creator of Ethereum. Yeah. He created it with a bunch of really shady characters who took the money and ran. But he stuck around, so good on him for that. Basically, it, Vitalik says in this article, yeah, we probably made it too complex. We probably shouldn't have tried to roll our own smart contract EVM platform. We probably should have distributed the tokens more equally. I mean, literally everything about Ethereum that I guess Bitcoiners have been criticizing it for, he sort of says, yeah, mea culpa. And what's kind of interesting is I'd say a big portion of this blog post, which just went out a, a, a day or two ago as we're recording this, really throws shade on how complicated their Gasper proof of stake is. That whole system is extremely complex and they haven't even implemented it yet. But he's already acknowledging like we overcooked this. Every other chain that purports to do this better, Solana, Cardano, whatever, they're taking these problems that, it, that Vitalik is pointing out with Ethereum and doubling down on them. If you think about this, you know, if you want to basically get my shortcut to not having to worry about all these altcoins, not having to FOMO about people telling you all about all the mad gains they're making, all you have to do is read the BitMEX blog about the ETH versus Bitcoin block size. Really interesting. And then read this article from Vitalik and just think about it. Think about how these things all fit together. And the way they fit together is basically anything can exist short term. Any nonsense can survive in the present. But for things to persist, for them to remain solid and to continue working, they have to fundamentally make sense. And these things simply do not. Right. And with these digital assets, you're talking about something that will remain as pristine 100 years from now as the day you bought it, right? This is a new type of asset that you can pass on to your, to your kids, to your family, to your friends. It is absolutely forever pristine. So then the question starts to become, well, what the hell is going to survive 100 years? Because that's the next, like, how, how are you going to keep something for 100 years? Is Ethereum going to survive 100 years? Maybe, uh, maybe all these changes they still have planned for the next few years, maybe they all pan out perfectly and uh, it becomes a developer platform dream. But the thing that I know about Bitcoin is that it is almost perfectly simple. It's extremely complicated, but yet also elegant and simple. And when you read those eight pages, you'll grok what I'm talking about. And Bitcoin is just essentially pure money. It's not a development platform. It doesn't have an EVM. It is money. It is the best money humans have ever created. It is a synthetic product that we have engineered to be the ideal, perfect asset. And that likely has staying power of 100 years. So we're towards the end of the show, and I'm going to read out the boosts we've gotten from last week. Pew! 
Pew. Just to remind everybody, boosts are a way to support the show and send us questions and comments. You can use a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain Podcast or Breeze Wallet loaded up with Satoshis, which are the native unit of Bitcoin. And then you can send us a message and you can pay a penny or two pennies or $100 if you're feeling generous. So our first boost, which was from five days ago, was actually from me. I sent a boost in and said, hey, Chris, because Chris was disappointed that no one had said hey to him. Amazing. Wow. Thanks, past you, I guess. I'm not sure if that actually makes me feel better or worse. <laughs> oh, it's sort of like a, like a pity hey. Yeah. Sorry. Sir lurks a lot sent us 100 sats from Fountain Podcast, and he said, love the podcast, found a link on JB's Matrix chats, and just took part in Chris's AMA. I think that was the the boosting, spending sats, spreading sats around. Yep. I did actually release that stream, if people want to hear how that went, and you can find that at extras.show. Oh, we'll link to that. And wanted to show the show some love. Thank you, Sir Lurks a lot. Yeah. Feeling the love. You're talking about boosts right now as I play this episode. Cool. So he's boosting while we're talking about boosts, and then we talked about his boost. Keep it going. If you boost again while yeah. we're talking about your boost, it gets so meta. And then we have one more. We got 100 sats from Jupiter B. Thanks for the podcast. Really fascinating. Well, thanks for the feedback. That's really nice of you to say so. Yeah, I saw Jupiter B at the stream last night, too. That's pretty cool to see that. I think, I think the B stands for Bitcoin. What do you think? Jupiter B? Jupiter? Or, or bread. Might really like bread. You're right. Could be. Could be. Or baths. Or baths. Maybe someone who enjoys long baths. Hopefully he's not barfing. That would be terrible. (laughs) So that's all we've got. And if you are inclined to communicate with the show, you can use a podcasting 2.0 app, which is always fun. Or you can send an email to bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com. Or you can connect on Twitter with at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. I also, I'll give a plug. I'm over there too, at Chris LAS on the Twitter if you want to say hi. Yes, I've said hi to Chris on Twitter. He doesn't respond though. Not always. Should Not have always. boosted him. That's right. <laughs> so this has been episode seven of the Bitcoin Dad Pod with the Bitcoin Dad and Chris, recorded on Friday, April 1st, 2022. And just to remind everyone, we're switching our subject. We're only going to talk about Ethereum and (laughs) NFTs. Right, right. Show NFT coming soon.